0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about him.
1: Good morning. Uh, our text today is John chapter two, verses one through twelve. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days.
0: Thanks, Natalie. Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. I'm excited to keep going through the Gospel of John. We're entering into John chapter 2. And before I get any further, I just wanted to go ahead and remind everybody of two things. One, so I'm going canvassing after church at 1230 into the surrounding neighborhoods to invite people for Christmas Eve here. So if you're free and you want to come and meet our neighbors with me, I invite you to come do that. Secondly, we have a party tonight here at 5 o'clock. Is that right? 5 p.m.? So, if you're here and you didn't know about that, you don't need a sign up or anything like that, just come on out. Come on out and have a good time with us. We're having our Christmas party, our annual Christmas party tonight at 5 o'clock. So, we would love to see you there. Now, John chapter 2. Okay, so now we come to uh, the first miracle of Jesus' ministry. Uh, John, as he documents many of these miracles throughout his account of Jesus' life, he calls these things, if you noticed, signs. These miracles he calls signs, which means that the miracles themselves are significant. They're not just for John uh, events that attest to Jesus's divinity. These events that occur, these miracles that he does throughout the book of John, they are a message in and of themselves. They're trying to tell us something about Jesus's ministry and about himself. And so here we have water turned to wine, the very first sign, miracle of Jesus' ministry, and John here documents it. He's the only one to document this, this miracle, actually. And so we come to it today, and the question we have to wrestle with is, why would Jesus choose this miracle, this kind of miracle, of all miracles that he is ever going to perform, to be his like, first one? His inaugurating, kickoff miracle. And the other question is, why would John, as a gospel writer, document it? Like, uh, he, none of the other uh, authors of the other gospels chose this one, but he did. And so what's he trying to teach us? What's Jesus trying to teach us? What are we supposed to see through this very special, particular miracle, which is called a sign? And what we're going to see is two things. This is a significant sign because it says something about Jesus' ministry that we got to know as it kicks off. And it says something about Jesus himself that we got to know if we're to live in him, have life in him. Sound good? All right, let's bow our heads and pray. Father, we come before you and we totally acknowledge and confess our great need for you. Uh, we, we haven't put you first often. and We haven't obeyed you. We don't share your love with others. We don't model your love for others. We don't love you to the extent which we ought to. We don't live always in a manner worthy of the calling that you've put on our life to be your people, your representatives. And so, God, we come to you acknowledging our helplessness, our weakness, but also, God, at the same time, we come to you confidently, approaching your throne of grace to find mercy and grace in our time of need, which is now, God. We need you to teach us. We need you to mend us. We need you to, to give us life and encourage us, Lord. So we come to you empty-handed, knowing that we are beggars in need of you. Only you have the words of life, and so Father, teach us. I pray that your Spirit would impress upon our hearts in a deep, profound way the truth of who you are, Jesus, so that we might know you, truly know you, and be changed by you, be changed by that encounter, that knowledge of you. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. All right, so this sign is significant because it tells us something about Jesus's ministry. Let's find that out. Go to verses three and four. It says this, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, which of course is Mary, said to him, they do not, they, they have no wine. Suggesting, obviously implying, Jesus change this situation, do something about this. Jesus turns to her and says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus, you know, his mother's saying, Jesus, can you, you, know, can you take care of this, this uh, issue that we're having? And Jesus kind of gives her this very blunt response. He says, woman, which isn't rude, uh, and it's close to the word ma'am. So it's not rude, but it's not endearing. But he's talking to his mom in a very kind of distanced way here. And then he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's clearly, Mary is asking him to do one thing, and Jesus is interpreting it in another way. Mary's mind is here, and Jesus' mind is somewhere else. Jesus understands something different than Mary intends for, to, to communicate to him, okay? Why would he be reinterpreting her words? What is Jesus thinking here? What, what's going on in Jesus' mind that would cause him to say this? Well, first, let's think through this. Jesus is at a wedding, okay? He's at a wedding, so perhaps... What's in Jesus' mind is the Old Testament reality, the Old Testament picture of God's love for his covenant people, which is often described as a husband and a wife, two spouses in covenant relationship with one another. So here he's at this wedding, and perhaps what's on his mind is the relationship that he has with his people. I think that's going to get clearer and clearer and more definitive as we keep going. If you go back to verse 1, you'll notice that John, John puts a little detail in there. Details are really important. We shouldn't just gloss over things like this wedding is happening, it says, on the third day, the third day of the week. Now, okay, for John's original readers, especially his Jewish readers, who kept time differently than we do, they start their day, the next day, at sundown. Our next day is the next morning. Their next day is when the sun goes down. So if you're tracking along with John's story so far, what we've seen is John the Baptist. His ministry kick off some events that occur with him. That some disciples join Jesus. All of that has happened up to this third day of the week, which means you know I'm I'm just gonna you're just gonna trust me as I say this without trying to defend it or explain it. That this wedding is happening on the seventh day, the seventh day since all of these things, these ministries have kicked off and started. Now, of course, what's what's significant about the seventh day? Well, it's associated with new creation. It's associated with the Sabbath. And so, likely what's on Jesus' mind is new creation, new Sabbath. This is happening on the seventh day. We're supposed to see, I think, that this miracle has something to do with a restart of sorts, with a a kickoff of sorts. And then, of course, Jesus hears what from his mother? That there is need for wine. And wine, in the Old Testament, is symbolic for what? It's symbolic. It's, it's associated with the messianic era, the, the new age that is going to occur when the Messiah arrives. Ben read one of these passages. I have two from Isaiah I want to show you. Uh, and if Jesus knows his Old Testament, reads his Old Testament, then these are the verses that are on his mind. Look at Isaiah 25. It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. But what's going to happen at this feast with the wine that's flowing? It says this, He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So, in the new age to come, that is symbolically captioned as a feast with wine that is flowing Reproach will be taken away. Death will be defeated. All nations will be invited. All nations will be included. Sadness will be no more. There will be forgiveness that just flows. And then Isaiah 55 says this. Look at this. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk for that which is uh, uh, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which is not satisfied? Listen diligently, diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you did not know and a nation that did not know shall run to you because the Lord your God of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So, what does Isaiah seem to be anticipating here in the Old Testament? That when the Messiah arrives, it's going to be like you get the best of wine for no price at all. It's going to be marked by forgiveness. It's going to be marked by all nations. It's going to be marked by a new covenant that's led by a new David, okay? Why is this such good news? Why is this so um, important? that this Messiah is going to kick off this new uh, uh, era. It's, here's why. <laughs> because the old way of things, the old covenant, those rituals, that ceremony, uh, it was patchwork. It made a person ceremonially, uh, ritually clean, able to approach God, uh, past sins forgiven, doing these things but not future sins expunged for, atoned for, past, present, future, sure, patchwork, but all sins ever not expunged, not yet, but there will be a day when the Messiah comes, when all sins will be dealt with in the most deepest, thorough of ways. No more, no more rituals, no more cleaning up they will be done away with completely by this Messiah. That's what this wine is supposed to remind us of, This new age that's going to be better than you can imagine. This feast that's going to be better than you can imagine. And so notice the details John gives us, uh, that Jesus gives uh, uh, here as he keeps on going in verses 6 through 8. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So there just happens to be these... um, these stone jars that are used in the, in the temple, and the rituals associated with the old covenant. But look what Jesus does. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they fill them up to the brim. And Jesus said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. So these stone jars are used for temple purification, which means you'd wash your hands in these jars and enter into the temple so that you'd be ritually clean and able to participate in the way of things and, uh, and worship God and offer your sacrifices. But what they represent, though, was what? An insufficient way of things. It was patchwork. These things are associated with the patchwork of the old way. They're not sufficient to do the deepest work that is necessary to bring thorough forgiveness, past, present, future, to all nations in such a way that defeats sin and lifts all sadness. Sadness. And so Jesus is doing everything purposeful here. He, he's absolutely trying to make a point. This is not coincidental. This is not accidental. This is all purposeful. And he asked them to fill it to the brim. And did you notice how many stone jars there are? John records for us there are six, which of course falls one short of seven, the number of completion. So we're absolutely supposed to see that the old way of things is not gonna do the job. It falls short of what we need. And so then what happens? We know the story, verse nine. When the master of the feast tasted the water that had now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said, everyone serves the good wine first when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine till now. So listen, Jesus fills to the brim six of these massive stone jars. It's 150 gallons or so all together It's the best wine that this master of the feast has ever tasted. It's outstanding wine. And John calls this sign, this miracle, a sign, which means it points to something beyond itself. It's a message for us to understand and be taught by. It's telling us something about Jesus's ministry, what Jesus is doing, what he's inaugurating. What is the sign pointing us to? It's telling us that Jesus is inaugurating a new era. And now, listen, this is really important. The old is gone, and the new has come. The insufficient old is replaced by the new and more than enough. There will be no more need for the former way of things. It's totally replaced, totally superseded. Jesus' ministry is bringing about the feast and the wine and the wedding that the prophets have long ago longed for. His ministry, in other words, is bringing a new creation, an ultimate Sabbath, a new covenant under a new era. So that's what is on Jesus' mind. Clearly, that's what he's trying to teach us through this miracle that he performs. But you'll notice that Jesus is somber, isn't he? Like, this is a happy wedding. This is a feast, and the wine is flowing. That's what... These Old Testament prophecies, they're exciting, they're thrilling, they, they cause our, our joy to rise, our anticipation to rise, but Jesus here is somber. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Why is Jesus sitting in this party, in this feast, in a somber attitude, in a somber, in a somber way? It's because he knows that in order for this new wine to flow in this new era, It's going to cost him his own wine. It's going to cost him his own blood. Isaiah longs for, looks forward to the day where there's going to be this messianic era that is marked by absolute wonderful forgiveness. But Isaiah also looks for the day when there's going to be a Messiah who is crushed and killed, led like a lamb to the slaughter for our transgressions, for our iniquities so that we can be atoned for and made right with God. Jesus knows that for the new wine to flow, it's going to cost him his own wine. And this is confirmed. And he says to his mom, my hour has not yet come. And what does that, that phrasing? my hour? All throughout the, the, the book of John, it refers to the cross. It's here in this chapter. It's in chapter 7, 8, 12, and 13. It always refers to his death. What is on his mind at this feast, this wedding, is his own demise for our sake. When Jesus, right before he dies, has that final meal with his friends at Passover, What does he do at Passover when he installs the Lord's Supper? He says, this cup, holding up the wine, this cup is what? The new covenant in my blood. That new era. But how? My blood. The new covenant in my blood. So what does this sign say about Jesus' ministry? That he, at total cost to himself, absolute destruction to himself, gives us the one and only, best kind of salvation that we can fathom. Past, present, future, sins absolved. All peoples, all nations invited to come before God and have a relationship with him. What it feels like to be in this salvation, what, it, what the experience is like, it's a feast with the best wine free of charge because it cost him his own wine. Because it cost him his own life. So salvation for us, it should feel like a feast. It should feel like incredible wine. But let me level with you now, all right? Because I know some of you think, are thinking right now, all right, my salvation <laughs> doesn't always feel like that. It doesn't feel like a feast. It doesn't feel like I'm sipping on the best wine I've ever had. And so what do we make of that? What are you supposed to do with that? Don't freak out. And it's okay. And that's totally Normal. There, there's something called the, the, the theologians call the already not yet. That Jesus has inaugurated our salvation already. He's inaugurated the kingdom already. He's inaugurated the messianic era already, but not yet fully. We already are saved. We are, but not in the fullest sense yet. So therefore, we're gonna live in this tension. Where sometimes it feels like we're feasting, sometimes it feels like we're sipping on the best wine. Other times it feels like we're alone and we're hungry and we don't know what to do. That's normal. We live in the already and the not yet. There will be a day where, where our betrothal, right, this, this wedding feast that we've been promised, it's going to come to fruition. There's no, uh, it's no coincidence that Revelation 21 pictures the church, you and I, as a bride coming down out of heaven to meet our bridegroom Jesus. Right now we're engaged, we're pledged to, and one day we'll be married and we'll enjoy that feast in the fullest sense that there can be. But not yet. And so listen, Jesus' ministry should encourage you. Even Jesus, in a sense, lives in the already not yet. Even Jesus, in a sense, lives in the tension. and It's because he does that we can. Listen to this. He's at a party. He's at a wedding. It's a happy, joyous occasion. Yet he is sitting here in sadness. He's sitting here in sadness. Why? He's at joyous occasion. Yet looking forward to sadness. That what's going to mean for him. So we can sit in sadness and look forward to the joy ahead of us. You get that? Jesus sits within joy, looking forward to the sadness that is to come for him. So we can sit in our sadness looking forward to the joy that is to come. We have a great hope that all sadness will come undone, that all brokenness will be mended. It's already happening now, and he will complete the job when he returns. One way that you undercut this, one way that that, that you're going to be disconnected from this grand reality that we can sit in sadness, yet look forward resiliently of the joy to come, is if you put your hope on anything in the present. If you invest yourself in such a way that you're trying to make your happiness in people, in things, in your work, in relationships, whatever they may be, if you are investing your happiness in anything in the present, then it's only going to disappoint you. You are placing a burden of expectation on people and things that they were not purposed to carry. And they cannot make you happy. It's, if our hope is present tense, that's no hope at all. Hope is something that's forward, out of reach, that's so powerful, it keeps us going. There is only one version of that that exists. And it's the hope of resurrection that we have in Jesus. That he's going to finish and complete what he has started in us. And we know that it's one and only and it's true and it's genuine because it happened to him. Because he died and was raised and ascended, we know he's coming again. So truly, we can sit in our sadness, in our disappointments, in the present and be totally okay with it because we're looking forward for the joy that is to come and confident in the joy that is to come. But you will ruin that. If you make your joy in the present, your hope in the present, your happiness in the present. And here's a little trick. Here's what happens. The less you expect people and things to make you happy in an ultimate sense, the, the, when you start taking away that burden of expectation, you'll actually be far happier. Because you're making a blessing a burden. You're asking a good thing to be a God thing. It's not going to work. It's so when you drop those expectations, make your hope in the world to come, you'll actually have a far more joyous life, looking forward to a joyful eternity. So this is what Jesus' sign means for us. We have this incredible salvation, absolutely incredible salvation. Well, what if I to tell you this that that's not even primary in this, in this story, that as wonderful and amazing as that sounds. That's actually secondary. Forgiveness is amazing. Full atonement is amazing. Reconciliation with, that's amazing. But all of that is actually supposed to get us somewhere that's more ultimate, more primary. And so what is this sign not only saying about Jesus' ministry, but about Jesus himself? That is what is primary to the story. That is actually what's primary to this miracle. So just to review, Jesus is at this wedding, right? The wine has run out. And if you didn't know, that, for the wine to run out in a wedding that's lasting several days, for it to, for it to be uh, prematurely ended, that is a social catastrophe. It's an absolute social embarrassment. Not only for the bridegroom, but for the master of the feast. You remember that, that character who's mentioned in here? His job, the master of the feast, is to keep the party going is to keep the wine flowing. He's supposed to manage everything so that the, the party keeps on going. He's, he's the wedding coordinator and the DJ all in one, okay? That's his job. But he has not succeeded. Uh, and now there's this social embarrassment that's about to be made known to everybody. It's this huge catastrophe. But now Jesus steps in and saves him the embarrassment. Jesus steps in and keeps the wine flowing. Why does Jesus take advantage of this opportunity? It, it's open, the doors open to him to step in and, and change the water to wine and he takes it. He doesn't wait for his first miracle, miracle to be Lazarus being raised from the dead, to feed the multitudes and multiply the bread and fish. Those are pretty monumental, amazing things, but instead he chooses of all miracles to just turn water to wine, to kick things off. Why? Well, what does it say about Jesus? Think about this. The master of the feast. His job is to be the life of the party. His job is to be the ultimate MC, the hypest DJ, the most on it wedding coordinator. He is supposed to keep the party going and the wine flowing. Jesus steps in and becomes the master of the feast. He is the ultimate master of the feast. That is what we are meant to see in this story that he, Jesus, is the life of the party that Jesus is the hypest DJ, (laughs) that Jesus keeps the party going, that true life is found in him. Isn't it interesting that Jesus wants to start off his ministry in that tone, setting that precedence, that that self-definition, that I am the great master of the feast. That's what Jesus wants you to know about him. Verse 11 says, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Meaning, this sign shows us who he really is to his core, who Jesus authentically is. He is the master of the feast. He keeps the best wine going. Now, think about this with me. The Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good in the Psalms. Jesus later on says, uh, come to me and drink, I am living water. He he later on says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. (laughs) The Bible, this is pretty interesting, uses sensory language to describe our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God. You ever think about how interesting that is? And now why is that? Why does the Bible choose to use sensory experiential language to get us to understand what it's like to walk with God? So if a blind man were to approach you and and ask you, what is the color blue? What would you say? I mean, you can't can't just explain it. There's no real way to define it. The only way you can explain to a blind man what the color blue is is how it makes you feel the impression it leaves upon you. That's the only way you can do it. The only way we can understand what it's like to access inaccessible realities, to access profound things that we just don't have words for, is through sensory language. Jesus is telling you, here's what it's like to do the impossible, which is to have relationship with the transcendent, the the divine. Here's what it's like. It's like sipping on the best wine, at the greatest feast, with a master of the feast at your side at all times. Friends, that's what it is to be saved. That's what it is to be a Christian. That's what it, it means to, to, to ring dry the fullness of your salvation and get everything there is that it has for you. It's to walk with Jesus in rich, meaningful ways, trusting that he is the master of the feast and what he is doing, no matter how confusing or different or strange it might be for you, it's a feast. It's the best wine. Now, there's a few reasons why this might be a disconnect for you, okay? Let's talk application here. The reason one, why this might be a a disconnection for you is because you have made the mistake of thinking that Christianity is all about the rules, and all about the commands, and all about the right answers, and all about uh, the right presentation. And rules and commands are important. God's design is really, really good. I'm not saying that's not the case. But if you think that rules are what it means to be a Christian, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get bored, and you're going to abandon Jesus at some point soon, because that's not fun. <laughs> if you think that's what it is, it's gonna, it's gonna grow, it's gonna become colorless for you eventually. And here's actually something worse that might take place if you think it's all about the rules. You're gonna begin to find your life, your uh, sense of significance, your, 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 your vitality in those rules. You're gonna think that's what they're all about and you're gonna become a Pharisee who finds your happiness in rule keeping and others can't be happy unless they keep the rules too. That's what's going to happen if you make the mistake of thinking that following Jesus is all about the rules. When you get it right and understand that following Jesus is about walking with the master of the feast, then the rules and the commands and the design, it becomes a blessing, not a burden. It becomes a way that I keep my soul near Jesus and fellowship with him because I don't want to be out of step with his wisdom. But don't get it swapped. Don't make that mistake. Second reason why there's this disconnect that you might be missing out on on the experience of the master of the feast, is if there's a compartment of your life that you are withholding from Jesus. God, I give you my money. God, I give you my Sunday mornings, but I'm not going to give you my work. God, I give you X, Y, but I'm not going to give you Z. Listen, every single one of us have that. Every single one of us have a compartment of our life that we do not want to give over to Jesus because we don't trust that he's going to get it right. I'd rather have control of this thing because it makes me happy. If I let Jesus have final say, final word, final authority over this thing, then I might not be happy because what if he disagrees with me? And so here's, what, here, here's what's going to happen. If you keep an aspect of your life out of Jesus' hands, you're going to have a shorter ceiling on your potential for joy in Jesus because the more of yourself and your heart you give to him, the more he can fill you with himself. But if you withhold and maintain your authority and final word on anything, then it will not become an area that Jesus can show up, that Jesus can show you who he truly is, that Jesus can reveal to you just how amazing he is. So you think it's very counterintuitive. or it, It's very um, counterproductive. You think you're, you're securing your happiness by keeping that thing away from Jesus, but actually by l- releasing it and giving it over to him, you're giving him an opportunity to show up in your life in a new way that never, he never has before, which is going to blow you away and satisfy your soul. So you're going to miss out on the master of the feast if you confuse the relationship with the rules. And if you keep aspects of your life outside of the lordship of Jesus, because then he can't reveal himself to you in those new ways. So what do we do do now based off all this? What a great salvation and a great savior. How do we draw close? How this week, this season, the next year, how are we going to walk with the master of the feast in such a way that brings joy and transformation into our life? Prayer? Absolutely. Absolutely. Scripture? Absolutely. I think we all know that. And actually, in John's gospel, that's not what he seems to direct our attention to in terms of application or in terms of responding to this grand reality that Jesus is life. What instead John shows us over and over and over again in his story of Jesus is the way we respond to the fact that Jesus' is life is to walk in trust with him. To, to quite literally let our life be a trust fall with Jesus over and over and over, living in such a way where he has to show up and where his claims have to be true, living in such a way that verifies and tests that, yes, Jesus is in fact life, and everything else is settling. That's what John holds us to. That's what John calls us to. So look, look at verse uh, three through five again with me. Look at this. I, I think we gloss over this, but this is really incredible. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now think about that. Mary probably is getting the idea that she doesn't really know totally who Jesus is or who, who, who she thought he was. Doesn't really know who Jesus is fully. Doesn't know what he's going to do next. Doesn't know what he's going to ask. Doesn't know what he's going to require. This is mystery. <laughs> but yet, what, what's her response? Whatever he does is best. Whatever he thinks is best. Whatever he prefers is the right way to go. Open-handed completely. That, friends, is a trust exercise. That, friends, is a trust fall to Jesus. Jesus, you can take me wherever you want to go. You can take this situation wherever you want to go, and I will follow you. I don't know what's around the corner. I'm walking blind around the corner. But, Jesus, if you're in the lead and you are life, that's where I want to be. That's how we respond to this grand reality that Jesus is the master of the feast. Later on at the end in verse 11, it says that his disciples, when they saw this sign, the water turned to wine, it says they believed in him, okay? Belief is not a mental idea alone, just what I think about Jesus. Even the demons believe in God in that sense, it says in James chapter 4. That's not special, just to agree with God, <laughs> just to think that he is God, okay, okay? So what does it mean to believe then? Really believe. It means to bank your life on it and totally reposition your life around the claim that Jesus is everything. Then, friends, you and I will know in a very real way, in a very undeniable way, that he actually is everything because it's been tested, verified, and proven that head knowledge, that abstract knowledge of Jesus, has now become undeniable soul-level knowledge. That's what he's calling us for. And so, where's that, what's that compartment of life that you're withholding from Jesus, that he, wants to ha, that he wants to get in and have lordship over and have final say over so he can reveal himself to you? Look, here, here's what I think. I think of hospitality, <laughs> Are we as a church the kind of church that just has radical hospitality, that invites people into our life? That's scary because I don't have the time or energy. My house is messy. <laughs> but that's the picture. That's the picture of what it means to, to, to be the church. So I think of hospitality. I think of a new spiritual discipline. Who, maybe that's some of you here. Maybe you need to take more seriously a spiritual practice. Prayer, scripture, scripture memorization, faithfully being a part of this church. I don't know what it is, but, but is that a compartment that you're withholding from Jesus that he's not going to show up in then? Evangelism. Repentance. Is there an area of your life that you're just holding on to sin that you don't want to let go of? Humility. Is there an area of your life that you just don't want to bow down and relent? Whatever it may be today, Jesus is saying to you, calling to you, let me be the master of the feast in your life. Stop trying to control the party in your life. Stop trying to control how fun your life is going to be because fun, (laughs) life, vitality, the best wine is found in him. Great salvation even greater Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we want to be the kind of people who take you up on your claim that you are more than enough. God, help us to turn from whatever disobedience and unbelief there is in our life so that we can more fully cast ourselves upon you. Jesus, you are our everything. You are our heart's greatest love. You are the master of the feast. You are everything we need. And so God, help us. Help us to love you more. Draw us closer to you. Compel us, Lord, by your spirit to take you and your claims seriously and reposition our entire life around them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.